0: Welcome to this New Mexico in Focus podcast episode for Monday. It is October 18th, 2021, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Hope you had a terrific weekend as the seasons turn. We've been putting it out there, but if you found a great spot for some fall changing of the colors, the fall foliage, we'd love to hear that, or just whatever else you did this weekend. Uh, If you're like me, favorite time of the year, one of the least windy times of the year, that plays into it. But what do you love about fall in New Mexico? We'd love to hear from you on that. All right, let's dive right into this episode. Uh, No doubt it's a topic of conversation around many dinner tables. We're certainly hearing it in conversation in the Albuquerque mayoral race, lots of other political and election conversations and that is public safety and crime. You may have even heard some folks talk about uh, the state's pretrial detention practices Uh, and so we wanted to dive into that and really try to break down a complicated issue and to help us do that is senior producer Matt Grubbs Um, and he sat down with the director of the administrative office of the courts for New Mexico, that's Artie Pepin. That office recently worked with UNM and social researchers there to evaluate the second judicial district court, which is basically Bernalillo County, and how the current pretrial detention practices, how effective they are at keeping the right people free until trial, uh, and it's uh, obviously an innocence before guilt approached, approach, and you may not remember this, but, This approach was actually approved by voters in 2016 with a constitutional amendment. Uh, Prosecutors and police say New Mexicans are safer with more people locked up as they await a decision on their innocence. But Pepin and this new study may suggest otherwise. And so we wanted to crunch the numbers, get to the heart of this with Artie Pepin. And uh, let's do that now with senior producer Matt Grubbs.
1: In 2016, New Mexico voters overwhelmingly passed a constitutional amendment that proposed to give judges the power to jail people accused but not convicted of crime, and also that reinforced or retained the rights of non-dangerous defendants who aren't a flight risk to be free while they await trial. In the years since, the justice system has been debating the effectiveness of the rules created to administer those principles. You've certainly seen it on the news and in the papers, prosecutors and police bemoaning the release of people who re-offend and defense attorneys and the court system saying that the new system, while not perfect, is largely working and vitally, it's constitutional. Our guest is Artie Pepin, he's the director of the administrative office of the courts. Artie, thanks for being here. My pleasure to be here. Um, more than a few people see this as a tough-on-crime issue, something akin to detached judges hewing too closely to some constitutional principle that just doesn't really apply to real life. Um, what underpins your view?
2: Well, um, the courts don't really have a view on whether we should be tough on crime or not. We have, the courts administer the law and the, and the Constitution. But I think the essential principle that courts are dedicated to is fairness in the justice system. Without favoring one side or the other, we have a system that has the ways in which people go through the criminal justice system from arrest to conviction, and we have a strong constitutional principle that says we punish people, we put them in jail or prison, after they've been convicted. And in the pretrial context, which is what we're talking about, uh, it should be an an unusual, uh, difficult thing to put someone in jail before they get convicted. Um, And that's the system we have, and that's the one that we think is working. Of course, we can improve on it, and I'm sure we'll talk about ways in which we might uh, improve on it, but um, we're much better off than we were before the voters, I think wisely adopted the constitutional amendment in 2016.
1: What's the universe of people we're talking about uh, that this applies to? You've sort of touched on it, but let's define that.
2: So most of the data we have on Bernalillo County anyway, are felons, we're talking about people arrested for felonies. Um, There's been about 20,000 felony arrests since the Constitutional Amendment was uh, put in place. About 10,000 of those cases had resolved by early 2020, so that's what the study that you mentioned um, uh, looks at those 10,000 cases.
1: How is the court handling this right now? What, what system are they using uh, to figure out who's dangerous, who isn't, who can go free, and who should stay in jail?
2: So focusing on Bernalillo County, you have a pretrial um, department division over at the 2nd Judicial District, your, your district court here. And um, when a judge releases someone pretrial, which is what happens with almost everybody, most people are released. Of those 10,000, those 10,000 people were all released. Um, the court sets conditions on their release, and that is from telling you your court date and telling you to come back next month, two months whenever your next court date is, and otherwise leaving you alone, to uh, make having you contact pretrial services, maybe doing drug testing, contacting your employer, make sure you're going to work all the way up to uh, electronic monitoring or ankle monitoring that's used. Um, and then when the defense when the prosecutor rather brings a motion for detention, the judge can grant that motion and then you're in detention. I think it's important for people to know that we're talking about people who have been arrested and charged and you know they'll have a trial or they'll plead guilty or the case will be dismissed eventually. We're talking about the period between the charging and the resolution. Whether that resolution is the case is dismissed and nothing happens or they're acquitted or they're convicted and then they get sentenced to jail or prison. We're talking about those, those people uh, in, in that in between period. And it's important to note that, the, I think, that the Constitution uh, presumes those people are innocent. And, um, but the constitutional amendment gives an exception for the court to keep some people in jail. I think it's also very important to remember the court can't do that on its own. The only time the Constitution allows the court to put someone in jail before they go to trial or the case gets resolved is if the prosecutor moves, asks for the person to be detained, and then shows that um, really nothing short of putting them in jail before they get convicted will protect the public. And that's a difficult standard, but that's the standard that is in the Constitution, and um, it enforces the presumption of innocence. But 2,000 times since 2017 in Bernalillo County, the courts have agreed with the motion by the prosecutor and, and kept those people in jail before their case got resolved.
1: Um, Bernalillo County is where a lot of this takes place. As you said, it's the second sure. judicial district. So for folks who are trying, kind of trying to figure that out, that's what we're talking about. Um, you brought up the word presume. Um, and as we read the papers and watch the nightly news, we hear this phrase rebuttable presumption. Yes, Something that Raul Torres, the second judicial district attorney, has brought up, something the governor has brought up. Um, it's not the presumption of innocence, it's the presumption that the crime of which you're accused is so serious that automatically you are kept in jail unless you can rebut that or you can prove that you're, you're no danger um, to the community. Uh, is part of the problem the courts face in talking about this um, that something like that might appear to be a sensible solution? Well, look, these folks are dangerous, murder is a serious crime, child abuse is a serious crime. You wouldn't debate any of that. Um, But they're saying uh, that the fact that you're accused of this means that you need to stay in jail until whenever that happens.
2: So the courts don't take a position on uh, presumptions. That's something the legislature will determine. They pass something the governor signs. Obviously, the courts will apply the law, the law that the courts are given. What we try to do, we've been at this for three years now, and uh, the Supreme Court has appointed commissions over the years, uh, has gathered people together to talk about here's what we're doing, because we've looked at the data, it shows us this. What do you suggest we do to make the system work better? Regarding presumptions, all that uh, the courts ask of any change that they, we have adopted, or of any change suggested by anybody in the whole criminal justice system is um, suggest practices that evidence shows will result in the kind of outcome we want to achieve because it it makes no sense to change the system if it's not going to make the system work better. We have an evidence-based uh, risk assessment system that uh, does a good job of identifying those who are lower risk and those who are higher risk, but these are only risks and the judges are faced with being required to release everybody under some kind of conditions unless there's a motion and then deciding in those motions if these are the people that should be essentially punished before they get convicted by, by being held in jail. And um, you know, the public is interested in those cases where there's failure, that is where Uh, People are arrested for a murder, armed robbery, you know, terrible crimes. And they were on release, and and if the judge had a detention motion, they could have granted it. Um, So while I don't say the numbers are good, uh, I think it's a good place for us to start to try to get the numbers lower. If we'd had 10,000 people and 5,000 of them had been arrested for a new crime, that would be a lot more challenging system to make adjustments to than having 4.7% of the 10,475. And as we narrow it down to the ones arrested for violent crimes, a a much smaller number. So if there's a way we can figure out how to find those people and keep them before they commit an offense, um, great. You know, the ones that there's not a detention motion on, the judges um, can't keep them in jail They can put them on an ankle monitor and have them monitored, and we've recently made changes in how we do that to strengthen the public safety aspect. So we're always willing to make changes that are supported by evidence and that will help the system do a better job. Respecting the fact that um, 99.9% of the people the courts did release didn't get arrested for a violent felony. In the world of predicting human behavior, that's not terrible, that's pretty good. You know, it's hard, it's very hard to to be accurate 100% of the time. We would love to get that number to zero. Sure, That's our goal. Uh, We'll continue to try to change the system to get closer to the goal.
1: Sure. I feel like the most useful number there um, to talk about would be that 475, the people arrested for violent crimes. That's sort of what makes the headlines and that sort of thing.
2: And I think um, I appreciate that people look closely at the study Let's talk about those 475 people. I already mentioned, you mentioned, 13 of them were arrested for a first degree felony. People probably know, first degree felony, you can go to jail for 18 years or life, depending on the crime. Second degree felony, nine years, third degree, six years, fourth degree, 18 months. And then there are misdemeanors, up to 364 days in jail, and petty misdemeanors, 180 days. And I think it's important to note that around 87% of those people who got arrested for a violent offense uh, were in the fourth-degree felony, the lowest level of felony, or misdemeanor or petty misdemeanor category. The arrests were for low-level felony. So that can't involve crimes in which people suffered serious injury. Obviously, it doesn't involve murder and kidnapping and those kinds of things. Okay. So I think it's important to look at the numbers and say, all right, so there were about 50, a little less than 60 people who got arrested for a first or a second-degree violent offense. I also should point out that we define violent offenses by agreement with um, the other members of the, the justice system. The district attorney, the public defender, and law enforcement We're all involved in creating that list of crimes that we qualify as uh, violent. And some are more violent or riskier than others. Um, and so that's why, that's why the legislature grades them as first degree, second, third. So I, wouldn't, I, I don't want anyone to mistake the idea that I'm happy that the majority of that the large number of the four hundred seventy-five were arrested for a fourth-degree felony, a misdemeanor or a petty misdemeanor, but that's better than and less risky to the public safety than those who got arrested for first-degree felonies and second-degree felonies.
1: Okay. Okay. Just um, if we could take a final minute to talk about what's ahead for the legislative session. Sure. Um, district attorneys, the governor have they've talked about as I said the rebuttable presumption. Um, uh, change to what 's going on is there anything that the courts have looked at that they would favor any adjustments changes things like that
2: well as I said we have the courts have made changes to the to the system as we learn what works and what doesn't um, as I said before, we support whatever evidence shows works to make people safer um, and to identify those people who present a greater risk we think we've we, well we know because we just got to a study of 10,000 cases that validated the instrument we use. We know we have an instrument that helps us uh, narrow down into those people who present lower risk and higher risk, and uh, we believe judges have the tools to mitigate, to reduce the risk for those people who aren't detained. Um, we don't require legislation to, to uh, adopt uh, overnight uh, active monitoring of people on electronic monitoring for instance, so we're doing that. It'll start. Uh, very soon. The people are hired and they're being trained. Um, I know that the district attorney and the governor have both come out in support of presumptions, and I think I said before um, if there's evidence to show that they can help us identify dangerous people, you know, great. I'm sure the legislature will look to evidence and try to do the right thing, and the courts will apply the law that we're given from the legislature.
1: Artie Pepin, Director of the Administrative Office of the Courts, thank you so much. We will ask you to stick around and talk a little bit more about this uh, online, if you would. Sure. Thank you so much.
0: And as we mentioned, this is a complex, weighty discussion, not enough time in that segment to really get to everything around the pretrial detention and the study that UNM researchers did about our practices now and luckily Artie Pepin from the Administrative Office of the Courts spent a few extra minutes with Matt Grubbs and we want to bring that to you here Uh, and it really now the discussion turns to sort of the nitty-gritty of this approach which focuses around what's called a PSA or a public safety assessment, a tool that uh, the judges essentially can now use to gauge risk factors uh, and part of that including how serious the crime people are accused of committing in the first place and what other factors may uh, lead to a higher risk of other crimes being committed if someone is released before trial. Again, this is a tricky one and it's not the deciding factor, this PSA, it's just another thing that the judge can consider. Um, But it is something that, again, is in use in Bernalillo County, may be used wider in the state. And we'll talk about how that tool is put together, what tweaks may be involved there, and just what happens next, as well as resources in the courts for this new approach. So here now, a little bit of extra content with Matt Grubbs and Artie Pepin.
1: We are speaking with Artie Pepin, Director of the Administrative Office of the Courts. Thanks for sticking around. Um, We spent on air, uh, you know, 12 minutes or so talking about something that you've been talking about for years, so I know there's much more to get to than we have time to address. I wanted to talk about um, the Public Safety Assessment, the tool, the PSA, that um, specifically um, Bernalillo County has been using and judges use to evaluate uh, the risk of reoffense. Um, and flight risk, right. essentially, um, some subcategories there. How do you feel that that system is working in tor- in terms of its predictive capabilities?
2: Well, well, people might be interested in how I feel about it, <laughs> I would look to the data. That, that's the whole reason why we gave all of the cases that we could, 10,000 cases that had started and finished, because you can only measure success in pretrial when a case is finished. The pre-trial period lasts up till it's finished. We talk about pre-trial, but pre-plea, pre-dismissal, okay. pre-whatever. So those are finished cases. That's why we gave all of that information to the PhD people over there at the university and asked them uh, to answer some questions for us. Is the study predictive on risk of r- arrest during the pre-trial period for another crime? Is it predictive of a likelihood of appearing in court? Um, so it's public safety rate. You know, if if 80 percent of the people appear they get an 80 percent public um, appearance rate okay and public safety rate if 80 percent of them don't get arrested you've got an 80 percent public safety rate so looking at that data yes the instrument i mean they they the report concludes that it's valid it's predictive and also some very important questions we ask them is it biased because some of these instruments that have been used in other places have had a problem where when you look at the data you find they're biased against uh, gender or a race, ethnicity, so we asked those questions too. And in all, looking at all the data they found, uh, it had no dem- demonstrable bias uh, on any, in any of those categories. and, and So that, that was good.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, and I just, before you continue, I wanted to spend a moment on that bias. That's basically saying that in, in some of these models, Um, they look at the arrest rates of uh, people of color, the black community, the Latinx community, and they say these people historically have been more likely to be arrested and charged. So it's the, this is oversimplifying, but it's the garbage in, garbage out thing. If if you're taking bad arrest data, you're going to get bad predictive data. You're not finding that.
2: That has generally been the problem. And I want to be clear. No study has said that of the PSA, the public safety assessment that we use, or the Arnold tool, sometimes it's called that, because it was developed by a nonprofit Arnold Foundation. Um, Nobody said that about the PSA, but we have to get the PSA analyzed to see if it does that here. And where there's been trouble, it's largely been because these instruments use arrest uh, data, um, and arrest data is, it can be predictive, as it turns out, uh, of risk when you're, when you're uh, arrested again for a new charge, but also can be quite biased because for the reasons you mentioned, because of policing practices. We don't have any evidence that those policing practices were in place in Albuquerque, but you asked the question because you don't want to go on what I think. I, I, I'm not qualified to do the math, they okay. did. I read the report and I, I conclude that they must know what they're talking about, but they tell us that it is not biased for uh, race, ethnicity, gender, and for the first the first study of which we're aware in the country, uh, Native American population. We're Mm. not aware of any um, validation study of any instrument, including the PSA, that involved a a Native American community. And they found it was not biased there either, which means um, the instrument is making recommendations about risk level that are consistent across all those factors, that is, they're non-factors in what kind of risk you get assigned. So you don't get assessed a higher risk because you're a woman instead of a man or, or vice versa, anything like that. That's good news. That's the essential reason why you, do, you, you get a validation study. But of course, in looking at the 10,000 cases, you learn a lot of other things, and some of that can point you in the direction of how you could do better on outcomes for public safety and uh, appearance rate. The,
1: the PSA ranks people or rates them, puts them in different classes, mm-hmm. um, and You took a look at or the ad hoc committee took a look at, I believe, um, how many detention motions were filed for each class Um, Mm -hmm. at the most severe end of the scale. um, And I can see you've got data there, so feel free to find it. But um, one of the things that that caught me as I was looking at it was at the most severe end of the scale, um, you don't have a 90 percent rate of prosecutors filing for detention motions. What did you find and what does the data suggest is the
2: reason for that? Oh, I I can't tell you the reason why the district attorney makes that decision because they have to decide. There were um, not quite 5,000 cases, 4,995 over the course of this study that the instrument rated people at maximum condition or detained, but of course the court can't detain unless there's a motion. Uh, But, you know, it's an oversimplification, as you say, but you have people who are in the green category, very low risk, People in the yellow category, we should impose conditions on them to help them not get rearrested and and show up. And then the red category where we should be extremely careful about release and the conditions of release to make sure we're protecting public safety and and they're likely to return. So uh, there were almost um, 5,000 rated in the red, that red detain or maximum condition category. And the district attorney brought a motion for detention in about 20% of those cases, uh, 985 of them. And in bringing those 985 motions, the success rate, the grant rate, the rate at which they were granted, was about
1: 80%. Okay.
2: Now, on the other end of the scale, the district attorney brought motions in the lowest category, the, the green box people, the, the low-risk people. And uh, the success rate, the grant rate, was still 20%, even in the lowest-risk category. So the judges weren't... Um, they don't just follow the recommendations of the PSA. The PSA has data, which the judges get, including a criminal history and other things. And they, the DA can present pretty much any kind of evidence they want to try to convince the judge this person should be held. Whether they're rated low risk by the instrument or high risk, but uh, as to why the, the, the district attorney only brought a motion for detention on 20% of the people rated high, I guess you'd have to ask district attorney. Some conversations I've had with prosecutors um, I don't know if they haven't studied the PSA or if they were waiting to see if it was valid before they relied on it or maybe they just didn't think it was valuable. We do. A PSA is done before a person ever appears in front of a judge. So you get arrested on Monday you're going to be in front of a judge Tuesday a PSA will be done. We have people working overnight. They do a a PSA. So the judge the defense attorney if if there is one which there usually is and the prosecutor all have that information. So they have the criminal history and all of that. There may be other factors that the district attorney wants to use in deciding whether to bring a motion or not, but those are what, that's what the data says. About 20% of the maximum condition or detained people had a detention motion.
1: Okay. Uh, you talk about how much the system uh, can rely on that. It sort of underscores the importance of making sure there isn't bias in that, in that tool because if everyone is looking at the score going into it, um, they're sort of inherently leaning on it to some extent as you said well it's the, not the point is to use
2: data i'm sorry if no I'm no, no no that's good okay. the, the point is to give our judges data on which they can make informed decisions you know before um, two thousand seventeen judges couldn't detain people and they had to release people and we had a bond schedule and we had we had uh... you know bonds right we set money so the judge would use whatever information they had on a person and say uh, you can get out of jail before you go to trial for $500, $1,000, $10,000, 10% of $10,000, whatever it was, right? And we didn't really do a good job of giving them a lot of information to make that decision on. We adopted arbitrary schedules. If you're charged with a fourth-degree felony, it's a $1,000 bond or 10%. $100, you can be out. We didn't assess them for risk, that they were dangerous. The bondsman who posted those bonds when it was a commercial bond, which was very often, had no responsibility to supervise them for risk of committing another crime or anything like that. So anyway, in the new system, we are trying to give judges information they can use to make an informed decision. It's, it doesn't uh, bind the judges by any means, and uh, they can make their own assessment. They, besides the score, which they know what the score means in terms of how the instrument works, They can see the criminal history. They can see if they've had a violent offense. They can see how recently they failed to appear if they had prior cases and things like that. And, as I said, the district attorney can present evidence that's not even in the PSA, of course. And it could be from anywhere. The the Supreme Court has made it very clear that you can present anything you want. The judge will have to decide how persuasive it is. You know, if uh, you got a letter from somebody's cousin who said something that would make you be concerned about their threat to public safety, you could present that. The judge may or may not you know, find that uh, persuasive, but anything can be presented. Okay.
1: Have you found, I know that's not in use, the PSA is not in use statewide, have you found that it's more effective in ensuring appearance and preventing reoffense offense um, than just judges sort of handling this the way they always have?
2: Uh, we haven't evaluated, well, um, we know that the rearrest rate was high uh, before, right, when, for people who got out. But the getting out was fairly random. That is, if you had enough money, you got out. You could be the lowest risk person in the system, but if you don't have $500, you can't get out of jail. So it's, it's not really fair to compare the data because who got out didn't have anything to do with who was risky. So if the rate was really high or really low, it had more to do with whether low-risk people had more money or high-risk people had more money to get out. But we do look at um, national data and all that, and, and, of course, data from New Mexico. We've implemented the PSA in other uh, district courts and other counties. Uh, we're moving through the state to implement it everywhere. And we have found public safety rates and appearance rates in those places consistent with Bernalillo County. And the Bernalillo County, this giant study of 10,000 cases, is pretty consistent with a lot of other jurisdictions around the country who have gone to risk-based release um, in terms of appearance rate and public safety rate. Some do better. Um, probably the gold standard is the District of Columbia. They've got about a 90% public safety rate. We've got 81%. We'd love to get there. They've been at it for about 30 years. Um, and so we can we can learn things from them about um, about that. If you look at data and you compare it, you also have to keep in mind that we in Bernalillo County are only looking at felonies. We only do that for, only all the data is on felonies the psa for felonies every other jurisdiction that uses the psa applies it to felonies and misdemeanors Mm. now if you looked at a history of a combination of felony and misdemeanors your misdemeanants uh rarely get arrested for any offenses that are scary i mean you know those first second third degree felonies because they're misdemeanants that's their level of criminal activity they're facing and they're just low risk for um public safety threat They tend to have a little more trouble with appearance rate, although we can do things to mitigate that, like we're doing, like reminder texts to people's phones to tell them, you have a court date tomorrow, Mr. Misdemeanor, please show up. Um, So, you know, you have to really get in the weeds on things to see if you're comparing anything that's comparable. But the study we, we got from the ISR at the UNM shows us that, at least as a starting matter, from when we began till now, uh we're at least achieving public safety rates and appearance rates that are consistent with other places. And we can work to get especially the public safety rate higher. And um, this gives us a lot of information to help us do that.
1: How much of this issue goes away to any extent with additional funding for the courts? More judges, more courtrooms, that sort of thing?
2: Well well I'd love to say that uh we can make the whole system better if we just focused on the courts, because that's my area. <laughs> The whole system has to be properly funded. There have to be resources throughout the system. Um, The district attorney has to have the resources to make a determination that's evidence-based on whether to bring a motion for detention on dangerous people. Uh, The public defender has to be able to represent people in a way that's effective so that we're not sending people to jail because they had had poor representation or inadequate representation from people who are overwhelmed. The police need to be able to arrest people who commit crimes right, in the system, and we have to have the ability to have all of those things come together fairly quickly when someone's arrested so the judges can make an informed decision about what conditions to release them on or if there's a motion to detain them on. With regard to the specifically to the courts, the legislature's been very generous in funding our efforts to take pretrial services statewide. After all, if you're a judge, not in Bernalillo County, but in some other county, uh, you're under the old system except with new rules, right? You are allowed to detain people if there's a detention motion. You have to release most people and you have to set conditions of release. But if you don't have pretrial services, if you can't tell the person, we want you to report every day to pretrial services, or I want pretrial services to contact your employer every day to make sure you're going to work, because for some reason your risk is related to whether you go to work or not. They don't have people to do that. Their choice is let you go and tell you when to come back or grant a motion for detention. It's, a, you know, it's, not, it's not a very nuanced way to deal with people who present different kinds of risks. So um, I appreciate that the legislature has listened and understood why that's a better system than just leaving judges to their best, um, you know, <laughs> best efforts without a whole lot of information. We run, as I said, we run an overnight uh, office here in Albuquerque to do PSAs. And where we've implemented pretrial services in the other counties, they're doing assessments for those counties so if you get arrested in sandoval county there'll be a psa the judge will have a psa as well the prosecutor and the defense in the morning or next afternoon whenever you appear in front of the judge because that psa was run by the office we have here and we'll do that for everybody in the state um, except bernalillo county by the time we finish implementing because the pre-trial services they do their own okay so we do it for we the aoc we do it for the other. Counties, so San Juan County, uh, uh, Sandoval County, uh, Doña Ana County, the three different counties that make up the sixth district in the southeastern part of the state, and our plans are next to go to the first district, which is Santa Fe, Rio Arriba, um, and, uh, you know, Los Alamos counties and the other can- other districts around the state. Um, so uh, while we, we definitely need more resources, we haven't had a problem with, we're, we, we're moving Deliberately, takes a lot to get everybody on the same page to properly do pretrial services, but we found a lot of enthusiasm and the legislature has supported us and we appreciate that.
1: 2022 will be an election year for legislators, for the governor, (laughs) um, for district attorneys who... So I uh, hear. Yes. (laughs) Um, Are you concerned at all that the balance that you described that uh, results in a functioning system um, as it relates to funding, are you concerned that quote unquote, tough on crime um, legislation and funding will bring that out of balance and you will have more prosecutors, more police, but not other people on the other side?
2: No, uh, because ex- my experience, I've been a director at the AOC for 15 years. Uh, the legislature treats us on, on merit. That is, if we say, look, we need more judges here, we give them evidence why the case loads or whatever it is. Uh, they'll provide more judges. If we say we need to pay our people more because we're churning through clerks, and if you have unqualified clerks, you can have more mistakes, takes longer, and that's not good for anybody. They'll give us money to hire more clerks or run programs like pretrial services. Um, you know, I understand in the politics of things, you, the, the the need to lock people up or the need to you know not lock people up depends. Treatment is a big discussion that's in the legislature. All of that, are those are all difficult balances to strike. I'm not elected to strike those balances. Obviously, the courts will apply whatever laws that are are passed by the legislature and uh, signed by the governor. But the the treatment we've had through um, lean times and uh, times when we've been more flush tells me that, you know, we'll... We'll be given the resources we need within the constraints that the legislature has to distribute not enough money for too many things. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not here to argue that the court should get money before education or so, social services or mental health. Um, it seems like now there's enough money to maybe treat a lot, address a lot of issues. Um, sometimes there's not, and we don't, you know. I'm not worried uh, about that. Okay. I, I think there's a um, difficult balances that the legislature has to make, and, and you know, they make them as best they can, and we implement them, and they, they've they been good to us.
1: Hardy Pepin, thank you so much for your extra time. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here.
0: All right, let's shift gears in a pretty big way here. Uh, we know that if you are followers of this podcast, you care about this community, you follow current events, and there is a new place to do just that with a bunch of familiar faces uh, to uh, those of you who uh, have been following New Mexico in focus for a while. It is called Source New Mexico. If you haven't already heard about it, it's an online news outlet that kicked off online about a little less than two months ago, but they are pumping out content and they are a small team but a mighty team And a welcome addition to the journalism landscape. Uh, Heading up the ship here in New Mexico is Marisa DeMarco, who we have worked with for years. We love Marisa. And she was at KUNM, of course. And uh, she has put together a great team here in New Mexico. That includes Sean Griswold, who you might have followed his work most recently at New Mexico In Depth. Also, Austin Fisher, who was up at the Rio Grande Sun. Uh, a storied newspaper with just a terrific legacy here in New Mexico. And Pat Lohman was a journalist who worked here in New Mexico years ago and went on to some other adventures and then uh, made his way back to New Mexico. So that's the team. And uh, Friday afternoon on Facebook Live, Gene Grant uh, gathered them all together to talk a little bit about uh, what they're hoping to do with Source New Mexico. They're also joined by um, a representative from the States newsroom, uh, which the Source New Mexico is a part of. There are uh, States newsrooms in about 20 couple dozen states, New Mexico being one of the newest. And so they have sort of forged this trail in other states. And so we wanted to find out how that impacted the rollout here in New Mexico and how Source New Mexico fits into that larger footprint so great conversation here, especially for those of you like me who are news junkies. So without further ado, let's bring you that conversation with Gene Grant and the team from Source New Mexico.
3: Thanks, Kevin McDonald. Really appreciate it. Hey, guys, time for another Facebook Live. It's Friday. It's not Wednesday. We usually do these things on Wednesday, but Friday's just as good. I'm very excited to talk about a brand new news source for you here in New Mexico. It's called Source NM. Um, run by, you see a bunch of faces here that may be familiar to you or may not be, but I bet you know the names. Let me start with Marisa DeMarco. You might know her from our air, certainly. She's been a guest of New Mexico in Focus many times. She is the editor in chief for Source NM. She's a lifelong New Mexican, certainly, and she's won a ton of regional and national awards, as well as your, her voice, you know, well from KUNM uh, on, on, at the University of New Mexico. Austin Fisher, Santa Fe's based reporter and journalist. He's worked at newspapers in New Mexico in his home state of Kansas as well. You might know his byline from The Rio Grande Sun in The Santa Fe Reporter. And we're glad to have you here with us. Sean Griswold is here. Sean is a citizen of the Pueblo of Laguna. Sean's byline, of course, familiar to lots of folks around here, New Mexico in depth, uh, most, most notably. Patrick Loman. He's been a reporter around these parts since 19, uh, since 2007. Sorry about that, Patrick. Um, he's also worked at the Lobo as well, and actually in Syracuse, as well as the Albuquerque Journal. And we're also pleased to bring Chris Fitzsimmons from North Carolina. He's the publisher of the entire group for Source. We'll talk about States Source, and we'll talk about that in a quick sec. So, first things first, Marisa, congratulations, we would have loved to have gotten to you back on August 31st or September 1st, the day after you went up, but congratulations, the site looks dynamite. Tell us about the goal here in New Mexico. What is it you folks are looking to do with SourceNM?
4: Yeah, so all of state's newsroom outlets, of which there are 25, I believe at this point, are tasked with covering state government. Uh, The way we think about that um, in our newsroom is uh, as covering an ecosystem of governments, which is a phrase that I got from Sean Griswold during his interview uh, to become a reporter for Source New Mexico. Um, But that is acknowledging, of course, that there are many governments in the state that make decisions, right? including tribal nation governments, uh, the heavy involvement of federal government, So we're looking at how all of those different decision-making entities and public bodies work together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say too that our specific goal at Source New Mexico is to cover that also from the perspective of the people who are experiencing those policies, right? And to get their thoughts on how things are going, what they would like to see happening. um, As we saw, of course, during the pandemic and before that, Uh, Government officials are making decisions that affect our immediate lives all the time, and so the thinking is is that this is the right time and it's always the right time uh, to talk to people about how their public officials are doing and how those policies are affecting their worlds. the source New Mexico is uh, everything we publish is under a Creative Commons license. I think this is true across all the state's newsroom outlets, mm-hmm. um, which means that any publication can pick up our content and republish it for free. So part of the thinking there is too that among our mission goals is to uh, be lending a hand to the other journalists here in the state to be pitching in with the coverage because, uh, I'm sure you know, Jean, that uh, it's kind of a, a fire hose of, of news coming at us all mm-hmm. the time and we're running around trying to get all the stories that we can. Um, so it's nice to also be able to lend a hand that way.
3: That sounds interesting. And to, to be clear, folks do not have to pay for access to the site.
4: Not at all. No. Um, our content is free. There's no paywalls, there's no advertising. Uh, we put out a newsletter every morning that uh, people can subscribe to so they get the day's uh, news that's coming out of our newsroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and also from the D.C. Bureau, so State's Newsroom has four staff members in D.C. who are watching uh, the federal government, things that are going on in, in Congress and with the Biden administration. We have that content as well, uh, which is also Creative Commons license and can be used by any outlet in the state.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Good stuff. Let me turn to a couple of reporters. Chris, stand by just for a quick sec. Hey, Sean, um, just, quick, just to start with you. I see you're uh, muted there, by the way, just so you know. Um, <laughs> that happens. We're used to this on Zoom. Um, man, there's a lot of stories. When you go to your site, it is chock-a-block full with New Mexico stories. And I got to think as a reporter, you, there's a lot of room here I'm sensing for you to really kind of dig into stuff. Am I on the right track here?
5: Um, and yes, that's entirely true. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to know Marisa as a news colleague um, since I was in college. Mm-hmm. She gave me one of my first freelancing jobs when she was an editor at the Weekly Alibi. And that was, that, at the time, that was incredible because that's like the spot we all wanted to publish in when we were in school. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to have an opportunity where she I can work in a newsroom with her under her leadership was something that I had to jump at. And uh, it came from that understanding that we would have an ability to cover the topics that matter because we understand each other's news sense and news understanding about how the state should be covered um and yeah it's been completely um eye-opening to be able to know that like you can direct news coverage in a way that is not only impactful and is not only important when it comes to government type reporting mm-hmm. but as she mentioned earlier it's about finding the individuals that are affected most by all this stuff relating how government relationships to the communities that they serve um, through the perspective of those communities is really the most impactful type of work, um, and it's also it's it's very it's, it's enlightening. It's not really boring because we're hearing like fresh perspectives as opposed to just the policy wonk or uh, you know a, a, a public um, spokesperson for whatever department that's out there. Um, and we knew that that's what we were going to have coming in. And so yeah, it was it was it was not only the tone was set from the very beginning, but it's great to even see it like play out and and expand to to even larger. Um, enterprise pieces that we're working on.
3: Sean, mm-hmm. do, do I have it right that, uh, or perhaps wrong, that uh, Native American uh, issues as a, as a standalone issue in, at Source NM, I, I can't think of any other publication that does that in New Mexico, I, I'm, I'm, unless I'm missing something. But man, it just seems like there's, you have a, an open field to do your thing here with, with it being a strict, strictly, you know, a place you can kind of play in there. Does that give you a little more freedom to do your thing because of that?
5: Completely. Um, You know, I I also should mention that, you know, indigenous affairs desks are still a brand new concept. There are some newsrooms across the country that are trying to pick up on how these can be adapted and developed within their newsrooms. Not every newsroom is doing it successfully. Some of them are doing it better than others. And in fact, um, I came across the opportunity last year when I was working with New Mexico in depth, because they had created this, this whole idea of doing an indigenous affairs desk. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked there, the, the, the focus was on deeper investigative reporting and so I was very fortunate to be able to understand, to be able to set a base of, of, of making contacts within the community who is not necessarily used to having news coverage or when the news comes in, it's a little bit of a fly-by-night operation where they'll drop in for a couple of days or so and then never come back. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a little bit of an apology uh, trail that had to happen for me over the past year before I started with Source because um, some of the contacts that I was talking with had been burnt by the news industry or had had you know stories that they, that were misrepresented when they were initially pitched to them mm-hmm. and just don't trust the news and, and that, that ultimately is a disservice to, to the communities and these tribal communities because a lot of these people pay, watch the news, pay attention to the news. There are tribal communities that still have rabbit ears that get local television and that's their primary source of news. If it's not the tribal radio station or the tribal newspaper, which there aren't very many in New Mexico, the only one that I think is prominent is the Navajo Times. Um, right. so, so, I mean, I would say that they are also an organization that is primarily focused on indigenous news because of the community that they cover. Um, so yeah, we definitely have that opportunity to do so and, and doing it at a, at a volume that is um, focusing more kind of like of a daily source where we're looking at these issues um, regularly and not just in like some big investigative piece, but also in a way that can just update individuals about how it's gonna affect their daily life. And so for 100%, I've been given that opportunity to do that here and I'm excited to grow it. We just recently had a partnership that we set up with um, Indian Country today. Ah. So they're picking up a lot of like, they're, and they're a national news organization, they're based out of Arizona, um, but they're picking up our stories and they're distributing them the, the topics that we cover that myself, Pat and Austin all cover, because that's the other thing about this. It's, I'm not the only reporter covering Native America and we wanted to, and, and that's a goal of mine, I think indigenous issues and in news need to be covered by every reporter in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm gonna be the person that's gonna be here to help set that tone, I also need to recognize that these topics intersect across all across, all across the board. It's a big picture topic. It's just changing who, who you source with the, within the perspectives of these issues, whether it's education, housing issues, and and that's what we're all about it's not just me pat and austin have picked up on this as well Mm -hmm. and and now that we have that national distribution we're able to showcase what kind of work we can do about our native communities in new mexico
3: Mm -hmm. incredibly well said yeah absolutely chris let me get you in here and i'll bounce to sean and and uh, justin here in a quick second i i you know i've got to think as a publisher you know ohio is different from florida which is different from new mexico which is different from california wherever you happen to be having a footprint now. But if I gotta think that what you just heard from Sean and, and the other guys here in a second about issues here in New Mexico, is there value in these in this reporting for the other uh, uh, sources in the chain that you have across the country?
6: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think well, a couple of things. One is that we, we really believe that uh, not nearly enough voices are being heard in the policy debate at all levels of government. We primarily focus on state government uh, but we, we want to explain to people how the decisions are made, and then we want them to react, and we want to understand how those decisions affect their lives, regardless of the state. Um, every one of our outlets is different because every one of our states are different. Uh, but one thing is, two, a couple things are true. One is there are far few, uh, there are not nearly as many reporters as there should be, holding politicians accountable and also reaching out and finding out what communities need, how the policies passed impact those communities. Uh, and and, and they're not nearly enough voices brought into this debate. We're proud that we also have a commentary section on Source New Mexico and all of our outlets, because we believe uh, we want to hear not just from our reporters who interview people or tell stories. We want to hear the stories from people themselves and how policies affect them themselves. Uh, we couldn't be prouder of uh, Marisa and her team in the, in the first, I guess, five or six weeks that they've been operating uh, and they're, they're a great example of what we try to do all over the country in, in every state. And we would never presume, I would never presume to sit here in North Carolina or Washington where our office, main offices are and tell people what's important in New Mexico. That's why we want New Mexicans to tell people what's important. And more, more importantly than that, we want them to ask people who live in New Mexico what's important. So we, we work really hard and I think the team is off to a great start. I can't wait to see what they're going to accomplish.
3: Excellent. Just sticking with you, Chris, for a quick sec, just so we can uh, get a sense of what the goals are for the entire organization. G- give us the pitch here. What, why are you? Why the nationwide footprint? Why state by state? What's, what, what's happening here? Well, I
6: mean, I think it all started because we believe, and I, I believe this even more now that we've been going for a few years, that the level of government that is that has the most impact on our lives, but that's covered the least, is state government, state and local government and politics, not national government. We're all, understandably, I am, I hope we all are, very concerned about the attacks on our fundamental rights in America, the right to vote being primarily among them. Well, that's not happening in Washington. That's happening in state capitals across America or decisions about who's, who has access to health care or water or clean air uh, or, or just basic human dignity and rights. Those Most of those decisions are made in state capitals, and those capitals are being not being covered nearly enough. So that's literally why we exist, is to try to raise up those issues, lift up those voices in, in cities where and states where people live. And not think that everything that, that, that is important is happening in Washington. So we, we believe strongly in that. And I think Source New Mexico is a great example of how that works.
3: Mm, good stuff there. Chris, I'll bounce back to you in a quick sec. Got to get my man, Austin, in here. Good to see you guys. All of you get to you, Patrick, here in a quick sec as well. Austin, you've covered Northern New Mexico for, for a, a bit of time here at a couple of interesting publications. We're all big fans of the Rio Grande Sun, that's for sure. <laughs> Down here, the way you guys rabble rouse or used to rabble rouse up there when you were there. Uh, talk, talk to me about your interest here in northern New Mexico specifically. Is this a hand in glove thing? Are you able to carry on what you've been doing all along and just take it to a further
4: place?
7: Yeah, I've I've able I've been able to carry on you know the same kind of work that I was doing at the Rio Grande Sun here at Source New Mexico. Um, a just a focus on on people, and the people of northern New Mexico have you know, provided me with incredible stories to tell over the years, and I'm forever indebted to them. And Source is allowing me to do that same work here. And and one of the reasons why I joined this organization is because I spoke to a mentor of mine, Tim Carpenter, who uh, uh, worked for the Topeka Capital Journal, and now works for our sister organization in Kansas called the Kansas Reflector. And Tim told me uh, months before um, this even started, you know, they've never, um, the the national organization has never interfered with his editorial independence, and he's doing the same work at the Reflector that he'd been doing at the paper for decades. And that's part of the reason why I joined, mm-hmm. is that, like Chris said, uh, we know, and we know the people, and we know that New Mexicans know exactly what they need and, and how the government should treat them.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: And uh, it's it's just an incredibly uh, rewarding and and exciting uh, place to be in. I feel really lucky.
3: And we're lucky as readers. I mean, you've done such good work for a while up there that uh, we want to continue reading your byline, that's for sure. I'll bounce back to you in a quick second. Welcome back, Patrick Lohman. Welcome back to New Mexico, first of all. And I'm glad glad to see you. Glad you're back here. Again, something must have drawn you back here. You, you've done some things and you have some choices. What was it about Source Source.NM that, that uh, was attractive to you?
8: Um, well, first off, I was also lucky with Sean to get to work with Marisa back when I was in college for the alibi. Um, and at the time, uh, she just was willing to um, trust me and, you know, kind of let me learn on the job. Um, we did some really big stories there, even though, um, you know, that were ambitious and kind of... Uh, um just a real um really important experience in my life and so when i knew that marisa was involved i i knew that um i'd be getting something that that could be could be great um and that i'd love to help uh pitch in and do what i could to to be part of it um but i think you know just i've seen kind of what nonprofit um news outlets have done in new mexico i think of uh, new mexico in depth and searchlight new mexico and a couple of the other things around and it just seems like um, they're, they're really important and a really big part of the conversation and a crucial part of the landscape, the media landscape in New Mexico. Um, so I just, it just felt like this is, this was my chance. I can't imagine a better opportunity to do journalism in New Mexico than, than at, at source. So um, if I wanted to go back, which I did, this was the place to be.
1: There you
3: go. Marisa, that says a lot about you. I'm telling you, <laughs> your name keeps coming up here. Uh, and I got to ask you, it
4: is, Oh, I'm sorry, it's it's very, very kind. And and I am grateful every day that this is my squad, right? Like we are doing great work. We trust each other. We know each other. Um, I feel really good about everything everybody's making and writing and uh, just feel excited about the website every day. Every day when I'm posting the stories, I'm like, this is good, you know? So, and that's all them, so.
3: I want to swing at a couple of other names here as well. Um, Chris mentioned that you do have, as part of the, part of the uh, sort of setup for source, uh, guest columns, people voicing opinions and such. And you've got a couple of folks who are familiar to the marketplace. Talk about that if you would. I've seen some interesting stuff on that side of the publication.
4: Yeah, I, I've reached out to all kinds of different folks and I was trying to get a big cross section of people mm-hmm. uh, by age, by uh, other demographics. Um, we have Allegra Love, who's writing about immigration. She's a longtime immigration attorney mm-hmm. um, in this part of the country and a real expert in that stuff and has really unique, detailed perspective on what's happening at the border where she works all the time. So it's really cool to have a regular recurring voice um, of somebody who's regularly in ICE detention facilities or who's at the border. Um, And then we also have uh, recently, we had our first column from Jonathan Juarez, um, who is a younger person, comes through Generation Justice, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a program at KUNM. I wrote a great column uh, about environmental action of this activism from indigenous folks around the world. Um, there's a, Margaret Wright is uh, one of our columnists. She just put a, a really great piece of analysis, uh, political analysis for us. Uh, Barbara Jordan is among our columnists. She led the Black New Mexico movement in Rio Rancho um, and also started an organization that aims to get more people of color to run for office uh, so that's her her goal. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to think of all the columnists, we've had some really great ones, but uh, those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I think it's a it great happen. problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you got so
3: many. I mean, that's that's a great that's a great problem. So many quality voices, that's for sure. Hey, Chris, I got I got a question for you. Um, we've had many attempts at the nonprofit model. You know, Patrick mentioned that a second ago here in New Mexico and across the country, for that matter. You know, I think back to the days of like the Texas Tribune and you know, there's a there was a pub pub out of San Diego way back when right. you know that you know it's had its ups and downs, the nonprofit model. Have we have we turned a corner here? And is your is your way doing it coast to coast, the better way to go here? Is that, is that what's happening?
6: I don't know, I, I, I certainly uh, respect those publications. Texas Tribune is still doing well. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and there are a lot of great nonprofits around the country that aren't af- affiliated with us. And we're just trying to be another voice, another ally, another way to get people's, uh, lift people's voices up and tell stories around the country. I do think nonprofit journalism is part of the future and solution of journalism. It's not the only one, but I think it has to play a vital role uh, we work really hard to make, and, and you've heard this before, to make sure our content is accessible. We want it reprinted. The goal is to get the information out there. That's literally why we exist, mm-hmm. is to tell the stories and have them out there and have people read uh, the things that they need to make decisions about their lives and to make their lives better and to understand what their neighbors and, and community members are are doing and the things that they share in common. Um, I think we, our model, the way we do things is to, uh, we provide a lot of infrastructure to let this great team that you have with us today do their do their work and do their job, and we provide them a lot of as much support as we can. Uh, we are the, the good thing about having a national network is there are best practices. Marisa can share stories with other editors. She can ask for technical assistance from somebody with a, a specific issue that we haven't even thought of. Reporters share ideas. I think we'll increasingly have larger projects. We have a lot of interest in uh, you know in the Southwest and in indigenous. Uh, issues important to the in, indigenous communities mm-hmm. there's plenty of rooms we share content i think there's a great sort of uh, network that we have built because of the people in it we haven't built it we've just found people who are good and they work together so i do think that is a as, that's an advantage that we have
3: mm-hmm. competition is that a word that's applicable here in the nonprofit world i mean i i ask out of ignorance i don't think it is but is, is it something you guys think about out there
6: uh, are you asking me or yeah, sorry, Chris. Um, I, am. I mean, I, I think the most important thing is to get the stories told. Everybody wants to, I, you know, I'd love for our our folks to break the story, but if we don't, that's great. It's okay as long as the story is, you know, somebody's telling that story. I just want the stories told. I think journalism works best when people are collegial and a little bit competitive. If somebody else does a great story that that breaks new ground, then we follow it up with another story that tells a different voice or looks at it at a different angle or explains it a different way. And then they do the same thing. And by the time it's over. Politicians are held accountable, communities are represented, voices are lifted up. I think there's so much news. Uh, I think Marisa mentioned the fire hose of news that there's plenty to report for everybody. So we wanna be collaborative. We also, I mean, I think everybody's a little competitive, but it's not about beating each other, it's about doing better so everybody does better. We're not interested in uh, in winning, we're interested in telling stories and and, and and helping people's lives. And so I think if we can compete in a way to all do that as, as, as well as we can, then we all will have succeeded.
3: Mm-hmm. As a pbs guy i can relate to that it's really not about competition for blood it's about competition to make us all better right and get and get stories out uh um, marisa i want to wrap up here real, real quick i know i'm keeping you guys quite a quite a while here because you're working um <laughs> what should we be looking for in the future coming up anything special on the burner are you going to be honing in on any specific things i appreciate what chris was saying about state government and we've got our own wacky system here <laughs> of our state government Uh, And I'm curious what you guys have on tap for our upcoming 30 day.
4: Well, oh, well, just next week, I'll say that we are going to be on the cover of the Santa Fe Reporter with a big uh, story about housing issues in New Mexico, Um, looking at it from many different angles, from many different systemic angles and asking questions about whether the housing crisis is gonna end up in the next 30-day session. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have some confirmation that people will be pushing for that and considering it, there's nothing firm yet, Uh, but the problem as Pat and Austin outline in that piece is uh, getting pretty serious or it has been very serious for a long time and was exacerbated by the pandemic, I would say, and continues to worsen, right? Um, so great pieces from Pat and Austin that they, they, we combined their work to create this package for the Santa Fe Reporter. Uh, we also, Sean will be hosting and I'll be co-hosting an hour-long episode of Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM on Thursday that's focused on missing and murdered Indigenous women and relatives. Um, that's a problem that's been long-standing, of course, uh, decades long um in this part of the country and uh, we've had some good reporting on it and we intend to keep following that issue uh, so it should be a really good show at 8 a.m on KUNM on Thursday so those are two things that we have coming up in the immediate future um, beyond that, yes, we will be at the session. Um, I'm always telling these guys, don't work too hard right now because uh, you know, we're gonna be like 24/7 once the session's in action. Um, and of course, they all work too hard already. but um, yeah, that's what we're that's what we're looking at. We'll be at the session, we'll be following it very closely. People can count on us for that coverage. And also, um, you know, we'll be trying to simultaneously, be looking at um, how those policies, like we're saying, um, are impacting people. So we won't just be covering it from the roundhouse, but we'll be out in the community, speaking with folks, uh, talking to sources, In the meantime, we are covering very much the interim legislative committee meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can find stories that are coming out of those meetings, which give us a sense of what's going to be going on in the session. Uh, You can see all of that reporting uh, today.
3: Hmm. Good stuff. Hey, Marisa, you're no stranger to the podcast. You've done a bunch with us. Is this part of the planning? And, And Chris, I don't know if this is part of the deal for all the affiliates out there but there's lots of ways to communicate news stories beyond the written word. How, how much of, are you gonna incorporate other other ways to do this?
4: Yeah, I love radio. As you know, I did radio for eight years mm-hmm. um, and I think it's really important in New Mexico. Uh, I think a lot of people count on radio to get news. Right,
5: right. Um,
4: so we, we are collaborating with my former news outlet, KUNM, which is a statewide uh, radio uh, station. Um, and we also have ambitions to get things like podcasts up off the ground as well. Um, at this point, we're just still kind of getting our, our feet under us in terms of um, our publishing schedule and, and getting organized. But I think that's definitely a plan down the line. Um, and in fact, I have all the uh, microphones and recorders and stuff already. So we're de- it's definitely happening, um, yeah.
3: And you're very good at it. Having sat down with you for a couple of podcasts, you're pretty good at that kind of thing. So, you know, just one of your many talents. (laughs) Hey, we want to thank Marisa DeMarco, editor-in-chief, Austin Fisher, a great reporter, Sean Griswold, of course, and Patrick Lohman, and also publisher Chris Fitzsimon out there in North Carolina, SourceNM.com. Do I have that right? SourceNM.com for the the website? Okay. I'm, I'm going to encourage folks to go there. I think you might be a little bit surprised once that screen loads just how much you're going to find there. This is not a slim operation by any stretch. There's a lot of good stuff already. And these folks just went up on August 31st, which portends well for the future. Thank you guys. Really appreciate your time today. And uh, Chris, will be in touch at some point down the road if we have to, you know, to work with Marisa on anything you guys might, if we can be of any value at New Mexico PBS for you as well. Let me just Absolutely. Thank there. you very much. Absolutely. We're, we're believers in what you guys are doing out here. So uh austin patrick sean you guys thank you as well keep rocking we trust you cats so keep doing your thing absolutely you. all right guys we will see you tonight at seven o'clock on channel 5.1 of course for new mexico and focus all kinds of good stuff going on there and until next wednesday for another facebook live take care enjoy the weekend
0: Well, that'll do it for another episode of New Mexico and focus the podcast please find us throughout the week stay up with the show on Facebook Twitter Instagram YouTube our website newmexicoandfocus.org you can also watch whole episodes of the show on our video portal at nmpbs.org or over the top through your TV apps like Roku or Amazon Fire or Apple TV Just download the PBS app and search for our show there. We always appreciate you listening or watching wherever you find us. Give us a shout out. Drop us a line about anything you'd like us to cover in a recent or an upcoming episode or a reaction to something on a recent episode. That's perfectly fine, too. We always appreciate it, and we appreciate you tuning in. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon.